Cool. So, um, yeah, in- introduction over. I guess the first question is, because uh, I think this was uh, all of our at least second time watching it. I We'd seen it when it came out and re-watching it rather than watching it for, for the first time in 2023. What would what did we make of it? What was our response to the, uh, to the film? Well, I mean, I guess immediately I was, this time round, much more kind of, I don't want to say horrified by the violence or something like that, but... Um, you become much, a, you become a centrist dad. I've become a centrist dad. When you watched dad, it the yeah. first time, you loved it, didn't you? Well, so, yeah, so I watched it obviously dad. more than when it came out. So it's about 15 years ago. And I was like, obviously, you know, repulsed or, or you know, kind of laughed at the... Fascinated. Laughed at the ridiculous parts of, of you know, things like the scene in the desert, which you'll have heard a clip of at the very beginning of this episode of, you know, fucking shooting is the same thing. Anti-imperialism and sexual liberation is the same. All that stuff I thought was obviously stupid. Um, but there were certain elements of like, I... I, I but wait, wait, wait. Just when you say opinion. stupid, when you say stupid, do you mean you think it was an inaccurate portrayal or an accurate... No. No, I think it was an accurate. I thought it was an accurate portrayal back then, and I think it is now. Um, but, you know, the, I there was a certain verve depicted there amongst these revolutionaries, which I maybe admired or had a certain kind of soft spot for. Whereas watching it now, I really was just like, oh, you idiots, um, you absolute nihilists. So, you know, obviously that changes, but that's probably more to do with me than than with anything else. Yeah, you're not, you're not cool. You're not cool anymore. You, exactly. You know, um, Phil, no longer what, what living in you? Hoxton. <laughs> um, I'd want to say I was always centrist dad then. Um, well, only centrist no, I mean, dads I... were ever called at Hoxton anyway. So I guess that is <laughs> that is confirmation. I, Radical um... centrist dad. Yeah. <laughs> I, st- I think my, my response is essentially the same, you know, in the sense that I appreciated. I don't think they glamorized it or as, as much as they did kind of glamorize um the Red Army faction, they they capture what was part of its appeal in that context. You know, in terms of the boots, the miniskirts, um, the style, the leather jackets, the sunglasses, um, the uh, you know, the shooting escapades, like the assassination attempt on the motorcycle and motorbike and what have you. Um, you know, so I think they, you know, insofar as they capture that that kind of um the romantic glamour of that of um, 60s and 70s terrorism and what have you. I think they do that effectively. And, you know, I yeah. still I still think that's true. Yeah. I mean, I think I would be broadly but, uh, the same as the two of you in that. You I know, have I remember to say, watch- I was, you know, I agree with I, back then and still, I still find, yeah. you know, the kind of the, um, the infantile character of their politics really striking and also um, effectively captured in the film yeah i mean i think i was probably relatively sympathetic to it sympathetic to them when the film first came out thinking you know these you know there's this feeling of like oh wouldn't it be good to just do something you know even if it's a doomed romantic self-destructive yeah yeah gesture like isn't you know that's better than nothing and at least you know you're kind of you're, you're being real and authentic and all that sort of so thing you, but, so you decided to become a podcaster yeah, exactly. I, st- I decided to to continue the struggle in the in the in the best way that I could. Um, um, it's worth noting that the film came out in November two thousand eight. I think so. This was very much end of history. Although you know it was two months after Lehman Brothers fell, but you know nevertheless, it was. I, I think that that feeling of like oh, I want to do something was in part of the uh, reflection and response to the complete sense of stasis of hmm. politics 
um, which, you know, you might feel like politics is stuck today, but, you know, you don't, <laughs> it's nothing compared to what it was like in 2008. So, yeah, I mean, I guess on rewatching it in 2023, um, Jameson talks about postmodern nostalgia films where history is commodified. And I definitely did feel that I was like consuming some history. I needed to get my my dose of kind of 60s, 70s radicalism and and kind of, you know, re relive that that moment, Alex. Yeah, no, I mean, and, and it's worth putting in the context of German cinema at the time, um, or at least the, the stuff that made it out of Germany and was popular elsewhere. Because you've got, I think in the space of a couple of years, quite a couple of films which deal with Germany's past. So you've got Goodbye Lenin, right? You've got Downfall, um, Sophie Scholl, uh, the Lives of Others, and then Bader Meinhof Complex, all in the kind of mid 2000s, um, which come out. And I think that aspect of commodifying the past is definitely, definitely the case with these. It's an element of, you know, Germany has come to terms with its bad old past, and we can appreciate it, uh, you know, through film. Um, and but we can, at the end of the day, come out of the cinema feeling like, you know, kind of happily, complacently, it's good that we don't live back then. Um, whether that's, you know, the history of the Stasi, the DDR, or the Nazis in one form or the, uh, another, or indeed, you know, left-wing terrorism. So it's like, it's all neatly kind of packaged up and put in the past. All very good films, actually, incidentally, but, uh, yeah. but I think that they, they all, they all um, I guess, fall foul, I guess, of, of what Jameson described there as, you know, commodified nostalgia. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's worth just putting it in the context point. of the, um, the of films about the the RAF as well. So the, there's this idea that there's three generations of of the RAF and the the first generation. So that's like Bader, Meinhof, and Enslin centrally, um, and that's what this film's about. But there's also you know multiple generations of films about the RAF. So the ones that came out immediately, um, there that's that that kind of before the unification of Germany, which I think is an important kind of contextual point, these were much more concerned with establishing the legitimacy of the state. Um, and so you had films like The Lost Honor of Katharina Bloom from 1975, Germany in Autumn from 1978, and that's reflecting on the German autumn of 1977, which I'm sure we'll talk about, which is where the film kind of ends and all of these things happen at the same time. And then, yeah, Alex, you mentioned some of the the kind of the later generation, that kind of post-unification looking back, commodifying, perhaps kind of selling back some radicalism of the RAF, that that kind of um, different vantage point, it does probably feel a little bit safer for a German audience to be looking back at this stuff when Germany has been unified, you're at the end of history, there's a, you know, there's a, a kind of a, a safer um, context for handling these potentially kind of challenging or, or difficult ideas. I mean, so, there's also one other film yeah. that I wanted to bring in here, um, which I watched more recently. It was, I think it was on Mubi. I don't know if it's still on there. I guess it depends where you live, if you subscribe to that service. Um, a film called The State I Am In, which was Christian Petzold's first film, came out in 2000. And it's about the sort of warped family life of fugitives. Um, the parents were both members of the RAF, or I think it's... Uh, maybe I don't know if you know that it's the RAF, but some left-wing, far-left terrorist group, uh, and their daughter, and their daughter who they try to protect from the past, but at the same time, they're constantly um, having to flee. Um, and so they're in Portugal trying to arrange um, to go to Brazil, but then they're unable to, and they have to go back to Germany, and they have to, you know, scrounge around for money from uh, former comrades and so on. And um, I, I think that that film gives 
it has a very different feel, obviously, to the um, Bader Meinhof complex. Um, not not only because it takes place much later, but also because it ha- expresses a, a kind of more melancholic sort of feel, uh, and and in, of these people kind of still stuck with the past because it you know they're 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 highly wanted criminals. Um, at the same time as trying to live a normal life, a normal capitalist life. And and that is expressed even most clearly, I guess, by the daughter who's like, I don't want to, I, I just want to have friends and have a school and live in one place rather than have to trout, you know, move around running away from the law. Um, and it's interesting just because uh, there's a nice counterpoint in terms of how these parents relate to their child um, in trying to protect her from the past uh, versus Ulrika Meinhof's abandonment of her children, which actually on rewatching, given that you asked the question, George, on rewatching, I found much more shocking now than I than I did the first time round. At the time, it was like maybe a, an index of her of Ulrika Meinhof's revolutionary commitment that she was even willing to sacrifice her children. Um, this time round, it just seemed, you know, horrific, right? Um, and we can go into the kind mm-hmm. of. Um, the sort of actionism um, and the potential nihilism that is contained in that um, later and, on. As and your psychological evolution as well. And my own psychological evolution. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A centrist in, dad. In reading the film, we're, we're reading ourselves. Um, any any other films before we like move on to what the film suggests about the appeal of the Red Army faction? No, so that's, yeah. I mean, in terms of, I guess the, the film is, as all films are, trying to tell a, a story, Um and I think one of the things which which comes through is that there's this device of the um, and these both invented characters, the Bruno Gans character and his his like um, assistant who are able to talk from that kind of state perspective about you know what is the why are there terrorists what is the um, what is the appeal of the Red Army faction because they're simultaneously sort of I guess a little bit drawn to the to the events or shocked by and horrified by the you know the the violence they commit but they're also trying to understand them in order to kind of deal with them as a, a state um you know does to any any violent criminals or that's how it's, it's packaged at least so yeah what what does the film uh, suggest about why the red army faction um were appealing to young people in in uh, in germany at that point in time well hello listener i hope you like what you're hearing it's a short excerpt from an episode that's available only to subscribers Want to support BungaCast and get at least two original episodes a month? Sign up at patreon.com slash BungaCast right now. $5 a month patrons get access to exclusive episodes like our in-depth analyses of present history. You know, the big stuff that's happening right now. As well as chats with our regular guests, extended interviews with the key thinkers trying to understand our world today, and much more. For $10 a month, you join the BungaCast Reading Club the place for those of us who are serious about equipping ourselves with the necessary intellectual tools for understanding the world and seeking to change it. Phil, George, and myself, Alex, look forward to seeing you there. Patreon.com slash BungaCast. 